Well, good morning. Good morning, folks. So glad to be with you this morning. I realize a lot of you don't know me, but my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors at Heritage Christian Fellowship, and I'm one of the uh, non-resident elders here at Philippi, and it's my pleasure to bring to you the scriptures this morning. Uh, Before I do that, a couple of quick announcements. One, uh, junior high is canceled for today. Uh, The junior high teacher is sick, so they'll be with us today. And then uh, a second item of business is that I talked to Sam last night at about, oh, 12.30 uh, in the the morning, I guess. And uh, he and Ryan are in Slovakia right now. They both are uh, teaching at different churches today. And so uh, continuing to just minister the word as as they travel. They're looking forward to being home this next week. So they've got... From now till Wednesday, they are going to be going full tilt. They finally arrive in San Francisco on Wednesday, and then we'll be making their way back, and they'll be joining us again uh, this next Sunday. So if you would, please continue to pray for them. Pray that God continues to bring fruit from the ministry that's been done there uh, in Albania and Slovakia and all the places that they've been, been traveling. Hey, we're going we're gonna to start our journey in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. And I want to I wanna offer a few introductory uh, comments. Actually, you know what? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you a scripture from Matthew chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. Stay in Matthew 3. But I want to read the invitation of Jesus. Would you, would you join me in, in just listening to the words of Jesus as he invites us to come to him? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you ever felt burdened? Ever felt overwhelmed, anxious, fearful, overcome? The invitation of Jesus this morning is to come to him and to learn a new way of living, a new way of burden carrying, a new way of walking in his footsteps that only leads to a life that he describes as a life with an easy yoke. A yoke was a device used to carry burdens, 
They were placed upon oxen, but also placed upon people. You could have two, two buckets off of the end of a, a yoke that was placed upon your shoulders, and a right-fitting yoke would make the burden easier to carry. It didn't reduce the burdens that needed to be carried, but it made them easier to carry. And that's the invitation from Jesus. So as we step into today's teaching, would you, would you pray with me? that God will meet us in his word and that he'll show us this way of living. Father, we recognize our need to be shaped and to be formed by you. We know what your word says. It says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And while we understand that as a concept, Living like you is a lifelong journey. It's something that we continue to live in pursuit of, having your heart, living in your way, having the same relational connection with the Father that you had, having the same compassion and care for others that you exemplified, being the kind of steward that you are willingly surrendering all of life to you. Lord, we cannot do this work of being shaped into the image of Jesus apart from the divine working of your spirit. And so we recognize this morning that we are completely dependent upon you to shape to change, to implant truth that sets us free, to shape the way that we think and the way that we live as your people. We cannot do it on our own. Apart from you, we agree we can do nothing. So we invite right now your working by the Holy Spirit. We invite you to search every room in our heart to expose the things that we have held to that have not been true, to help us to see error, to show us, Lord, the way that you've designed us to live and to then empower us to live in it. So, God, we submit our hearts to you. Have your way in us, God, in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, we are going to be talking about pursuing emotional health as an aspect of our discipleship. Now, in some Christian circles, emotional health is somewhat of a taboo subject. And there's lots of reasons for that. Often, this is because there are beliefs about psychologizing the faith. And there was a season in the 70s. 80s and even on into the 90s and early 2000s where a lot of preaching was centered around like the church is being psychologized and you know like you, you can't you, you can't merge secular ideas and psychology with Christianity and, and I'm not advocating that actually when we talk about pursuing emotional health we're actually talking about something that predates psychology that goes all the way back to the design of God and how we're made 
and how he's put us together and what are, what are the signs that we're functioning in unhealthy ways. And we're going to be going backwards, not trying to blend two ideas together. Matter of fact, I would be willing to say that any beneficial thing that has been discovered in the sciences or in psychology in particular um, is only affirming something that's been true all along. It's only a discovery of something ancient and old, something that God has put in its place. Now, I, I also think that because of overly positive teaching in the church, something that's often called toxic positivity, people are told that they should always be joyful. They should rejoice always, give thanks for everything. And these are scriptures, and so we, we affirm those things. Those are, those are true. The problem is, is that this has left many Christians ill-equipped to grieve, to express sorrow. We don't know what to do with anger. We don't know how to deal with depression because we're just, thought, we're just told, and the thought is that like, if I'm having any of those experiences, then I'm just not trusting God or I'm not, I'm not actually being faithful. Instead of it being something that, that God helps me navigate through, it's something that God is wanting me to get over. And for many that have been taught that these negative emotions are wrong and that the, the role of Jesus and the role of the Spirit is helping us to get over it rather than navigate through it, and they are confused when it comes to the Bible. Because you don't have to get very far into the Psalms before you encounter deep, dark depression. White, hot anger. Sometimes you even see God acting out in anger. Or God brokenhearted and sorrowful. These are things that God is experiencing. What do we do with them if those are wrong feelings, wrong emotions? We're ill-equipped. The Psalms alone should be sufficient to show us that God is honored in our grief and even in our anger, just as much as our joy and our thankfulness when they are offered to him. And being able to be honest about our hearts is a part of living honestly before God. And to live honestly before God and to offer him our hearts is the essence of what worship truly is. It's offering to God who we really are at any given point in time. So when we talk about pursuing emotional health, we're talking about the degree to which our thoughts, our feelings, and our emotions have a positive or negative effect on living to the glory of God. Now, this is an important aspect of our discipleship because it is one of the most ignored aspects of our discipleship. And additionally, I would say it's deeply, deeply personal to me. Uh, you see, I was shaped personally by shame. 
When I got saved in November of 1997, I was at my lowest point. I was a 19-year-old meth user, pothead. I was an addict facing three felonies. I had only brought my family sorrow, mostly shame. And when I heard the gospel in November of 97, for the first time I experienced grace. I had heard about grace all throughout my growing up, but I experienced grace at my lowest point. I knew I had nothing to offer to God, and yet somehow he still was pursuing me. He still loved me. And it forever changed my life. It radically shifted things overnight. And after that moment, uh, I attended Bible studies. I learned over time to stop cussing as much. <laughs> I stopped using. I slowly stopped smoking. That was a battle. I learned the insider lingo of the church that I attended. I, I went through a school of ministry. I got married. Eventually, I planted a church in Cave Junction. I prayed, had devotions, journaled, worshiped, both publicly and privately, memorized scripture, evangelized, fasted, retreated, etc. But you know what? It would take years before God would expose the emotionally unhealthy state in my life. And to be quite honest, I'm, I'm very sure that I have not reached the bottom of that yet. It's something I'm still in process on. I'm still exploring. You see, I had no idea how my shame pushed me towards overworking and other addiction behaviors like eating or endless scrolling on my phone or how my people-pleasing tendencies weren't just me being a servant in the name of God, but they were actually a lack of loving boundaries. I had no idea the harm that these things would cause me and the people closest to me. And it would take longer still to uncover how the harm I experienced as a child would stunt my perspective on relationships. And it would take even longer still for God to begin prying control from my fingers bring me to a place where I could love others without an agenda. Instead of loving them for their potential or what they could become, loving them for who they actually are, flaws and all. All of these issues and more are related to our emotional health. And we're not gonna cover it all, obviously. It's a broad, broad topic. But we're gonna lay some framework today and though we never arrive at a permanent state of always being emotionally healthy, it is a part of our lives that has to be addressed in our discipleship. There's an author named Pete Scazzaro um, who, who wrote a book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's a great book. It's one of my favorites. But he's got a, a, a saying in there, a quote in there that uh, is used frequently, and it's one of my favorites. He says, it is impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally unhealthy. Can I say that again? It is impossible 
to be spiritually mature and emotionally unhealthy. Why is that? Who you are on the inside is what you bring to the table in everyday life. That's just the reality. And if you are unhealthy on the inside, it's going to have an effect in the relationships in your life. It's going to have an effect in so many incalculable ways. If wounds hinder your ability to love, if toxic positivity keeps you from grieving, if anger causes you to hurt the relationships you have, you end up resisting all that God wants to do in and through you. You see, to be shaped in the image of Jesus will inevitably mean being conformed to his image in our emotional life as well. And so what I'm hoping we'll see this morning is that Jesus lived in pursuit of an emotionally healthy life. Despite his circumstances or upbringing, Jesus was able to be honest with his feelings, present and undistracted to the people around him, resilient under pressure, honoring of the stories and of the autonomy of others, all while exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. And he was able to do this because he was confident in his identity. This was an identity he did not come up with on his own. It was given to him by the Father. It was confirmed at his baptism. And as disciples, we are intended to live in the same pursuit of an emotionally healthy life, living out of our identity in Christ. So let's dive into our passage for today, and then we'll try and work out its implications for the life of a disciple. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 13, looking at the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, let's peek ahead to verse 1 of chapter 4 as well, because I think it's important. Then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Our outline for today, for those of you who like organized thoughts and love to take notes, comes in the form of four questions. Where, why, what, and when. Where, why, what, and when. As we explore these questions, we're going to get a better understanding of the impact of this moment on the consciousness 
of Jesus, how it set a course for his life. And then at the end, we're going to make application for ourselves as those who are learning to live like Jesus in the world. So let's start with the where of baptism. From verse 13, we are told, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus is at the Jordan River, and this is the place where the Israelites were led into the promised land by Joshua after Moses died. And it was really, it was the beginning of them entering into the promised land and becoming the people of God in the place of God under the rule of God. They've been set free from Egypt. They've been brought to the Jordan River. And this was now the place that God had promised where they could live. And under the leadership of Joshua, as Israel crosses the Jordan, God's people are now in God's place and under God's rule. They are effectively the kingdom of God. And Joshua led the Israelites into God's promised kingdom. Joshua, or Yeshua, as he's called, is their leader and has been appointed by God to help lead them into this reality. And now Jesus has come in obedience as the Messiah to lead a new kingdom, a new nation, into all that God has promised. Jesus has now come to the same river to symbolize the start of the new kingdom of God, the new people of God. Yeshua Jesus, the one who is greater than Yeshua Joshua, is now leading the people of God into what he promised. And at this moment, he's beginning his public ministry journey at the same river that Joshua did. And like Joshua, the promise that was given to him Everywhere that Jesus places his feet is territory being taken for God's kingdom. Matter of fact, if you want to do a fun exercise, if you go back to Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, you'll see this promise that comes to Joshua, and it reads as though it's a direct promise to Jesus in his ministry. It's a really incredible moment. So there's the where. What about the why? The why of Jesus' baptism in verses 14 and 15. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is, fulfilling, it, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Isn't it weird that Jesus wanted to get baptized? Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, Jesus doesn't need to be converted, does he? I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity. We learn from the preceding verses that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance from verse 11. That means that people were getting baptized. Uh, they, were, they were getting baptized because they were not living in light of God's kingdom. And baptism was a way of demonstrating that like I was headed the wrong way and now I'm changing direction. I'm going, I'm going a different direction now. I'm going to start living for the kingdom. And, and that, that's the message that John was preaching. He was saying, like, make the path straight. Fill in the potholes. Prepare the way. The king is coming, right? Does, does Jesus need to do that? Does he have something to repent of? 
Why is Jesus getting baptized by John the Baptist? And he, you know, in the passage here, even John seems to struggle with it, doesn't he? He's like, hey, I should be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me to get baptized? The Faith Life Study Bible has this helpful note regarding this tension. It says this, John's baptism for repentance was a means of identification with the kingdom of God. Although Jesus, the sinless son of God, had nothing for which to repent, he is publicly identified with God's kingdom through his baptism. You see, Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness by surrendering his life and future to the plan of God to establish his kingdom. His baptism is an act of surrendered obedience to the plan of God. And Jesus is, by going down into the waters, taking up his part in God's plan to redeem the people of God and to form the kingdom of God. This is not a conversion. Rather, it is an action that Jesus is taking to show his submission to God's plan of redemption. John's gospel tells us that Jesus was praying as he was baptized. This means that there was conversation happening between Jesus and the Father in that moment. Boy, if we could only have those words, that prayer. As Jesus goes down into the water in conversation with the Father, okay, Lord, I'm here to do your will, Father. I want you to use my life to display your glory. Use me to fulfill and establish your kingdom. Okay, here I am, Lord, wholly given to you as he falls into the water. You know, it's as though the movements of baptism become a representation of what Jesus will do to redeem his people. He came to die to lay his life down, to be buried, and then to emerge and to rise again. It becomes like this living prophecy. And as Jesus is going through the actions of baptism, you might even say that it's sort of like a faith claim for Jesus, that I will surrender wholly to you and I will also take up my life again because, Father, I am wholly yours. I trust you to do what you are going to do. It's an incredible moment, and Jesus is embracing it all. This is the why of Jesus' baptism. What about the what of Jesus' baptism? What is going on that Jesus gets a personal visitation and the presence of the Holy Spirit in bodily form, in verse 16. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Now, remember, in the incarnation, Jesus has taken on the humble form of a servant and is dependent on the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. He does not cheat at the human experience by utilizing his divinity. He's not sort of going, okay, I, all the rest of you in humanity, you have to, all you have is yourself to rely on. But me, 
you know, I'm God. So uh, when it comes to not sinning, I'm just going to use my God-likeness to not sin. When it comes to fulfilling the will of the Father, I'll just, I'll just lean in on my divinity. No, no, he is fully immersing himself in the human experience. And that makes him fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit for all that he does. He doesn't have to do this, but we're told in the scriptures that Jesus willingly humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Who's he serving? Us. Serving us. But more than that, he's serving the Father. So Jesus then receives the Holy Spirit. He's being empowered and commissioned for the work of his public ministry on behalf of God's mission. God the Father and the Spirit show up to call Jesus and commission him to all that will follow in the Gospels. Now, this type of commissioning event is an event that is a repeated pattern throughout the Old Testament. When God commissions and empowers his chosen vessel for a divine task. This is something that happens with Adam in the Garden of Eden, with Noah at the flood in Genesis 6, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Eli as a small child, Gideon, Deborah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Samson. We could go on. Again and again, when God calls somebody, he says, I'm going to use you in a particular way. God personally shows up to say to them, this is what I'm calling you to. And now it's happening with the son. This pattern continues then in the New Testament with Jesus appearing to his disciples. And what does he do? He appears to them in an upper room and he breathes upon them and says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then after the disciples, 120 people are gathered in an upper room. And the Holy Spirit descends upon them and they begin preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And it happens again with the Gentiles and it happens with Paul. This is a pattern that continues throughout the entirety of the New Testament as well. When God calls, he empowers and he equips. And so the Spirit is coming upon Jesus to demonstrate that Jesus is not only submitted to the will of the Spirit and dependent upon him, but also that Jesus in his humanity might be empowered to do all that God has called him to do. Okay, so now we come to the when of Jesus' baptism. This is where we're gonna really focus some of our attention here, our thinking. I want us to key on, in on the timing of this event. Jesus has lived for 30 years in obscurity, simply living a blue-collar life, laboring as a carpenter. He has done no public ministry. So when we read verse 17, I want you to think about this for a moment. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, notice the when here. His pleasing of the Father does not come from any good or obedient work that Jesus has done. He has done no ministry at this point. 
He can't point to his track record of being faithful to preach the gospel and and being faithful to be compassionate and heal others. He can't point to this track record of public ministry to demonstrate how good he is as a son. He has done nothing in productive terms for the kingdom of God other than exist and be a carpenter. Okay? The father loves the son simply because he is his son. And while that might seem obvious, the truth of that detail gives to Jesus everything he needs to face all that lies ahead in an emotionally healthy way. You see, this declaration from the Father forms Jesus' identity. Now, identity formation is how we make sense of who we are in the world. And Jesus' identity was anchored to what his Father had declared to be true about him. What takes place here becomes the defining mark of Jesus' life in ministry. His core identity defined his habits, his behaviors, his labor, and the chosen actions that he took in the world. Jesus lived, surrendered to the Spirit, and committed to live out the mission that the Father had sent him on. And the entire story of Jesus swings then on the hinge of this moment here. Who does the Father say that I am? It's something, interestingly enough, that is recorded for us in all four Gospels. It's as though the Lord says, this bears repeating. I want you to hear this. In the very next chapter, we can see an example of direct application of this truth in the way that Jesus ends up in the temptation and how he handles it. Don't miss verse 1, what it says there. Notice that the very first work of the Holy Spirit is to lead Jesus into the desert for a time of fasting and temptation. It is during this time that Jesus will encounter Satan and will have his identity attacked. But the Spirit leads him into that moment so that what Jesus really believes at his core can be revealed. By the way, Let me just say this. Often people think that the leading of the Holy Spirit is all about sort of the hidden voice of the heart or the the internal unction. And and that's true sometimes, many times that 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 is true. Often, though, the leading of the Spirit is through life circumstances. That is, the sovereign God leads us into life circumstances that reveal the imperfections of our hearts, the idols we set our hope in. Those things are brought to the surface. The comfort-seeking behaviors and addictions we cling to are revealed under stress. The attitudes of pride and entitlement are exposed when we are confronted with something beyond our control. And this, too is the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He leads us into life circumstances that bring out of us the things that God desires to deal with. It's a refining work 
like what is talked about in Malachi chapter 3, that refiner's fire that allows the dross to come to the surface so it can be removed by the refiner. (coughs) The heat of trials exposes the impurities in our lives so that God can help us remove them. And when Jesus is led here to be tested by the devil, the first thing that Satan attacks is the same thing that he attacked with Eve in the Garden of Eden. He attacked Jesus' identity. Each temptation is a direct assault on what has taken place between the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And Satan slithers in and begins to whisper the way he did in the Garden, if you really are the Son of God, he says, if you really are the one whom the Father loves, who the Father delights in and is pleased with, if you really are the Son of God. What are the temptations? Well, first, turn these stones into bread. This is a temptation to get his needs met outside of God's provision. We have parallels in our own lives, right? Isn't that the motivation behind pornography? Theft? Vegging out on media, abuse. I want what I want, and I want it now. I don't want to wait on God's timing to fulfill this need in my life. I'll take it for myself. Throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple, Satan said. This is a temptation to control or manipulate God to get the results he desires, similar to religious activities, good works, or bargaining ultimatums that we give to God. If you throw yourself off the temple, doesn't the word say that he will have to catch you, the angels will have to bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone? The temptation there for Jesus is real. You can get God to reveal who you are and to show the people that you're the Messiah if you just manipulate the Father a little, if you just push him to do that. That's the same motivation that we have behind religious activities, behind our good works oftentimes. The third temptation, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down and worship me. This is a temptation to not have to suffer the cross and to still get the kingdom. You you can get what you want and you don't have to go to the cross. Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms, Satan says. You don't have to take the hard route. This doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to require so much pain and sacrifice. There's an easier way there. Just bow down to me. And this is similar to the goals that we have often in divorce, in moral compromise, in addictions. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to do hard things. Doesn't God want you to have that hashtag blessed life? 
Isn't that what he, isn't that the will of God is that you would just feel good all the time and always feel happy about everything? God doesn't want you to have to suffer. Well, tell that to Jesus. Sometimes the will of God is suffering. It's going through the difficulties. You see, though physically weak, Jesus has been fasting and drawing near to the Father during this time. He is spiritually strong and is vibrant. Pulling from what the Father has already said about him, Jesus doesn't need to get his needs met outside of God's provision because his Father loves him. He doesn't need to manipulate the Father because the Father already has a good plan that Jesus is a part of. God will show the people who Jesus is in God's way at God's time. And because of the love that the Father has for him, Jesus says, I won't tempt him. I won't put him to the test. I won't wound him or betray him. The love of the Father motivates the faithfulness and obedience of the Son. And any suffering that comes from loving the Father is embraced wholesale by Jesus. Can you see how this works? The love of the Father is not something that Jesus has to earn. It was given to him before he had done anything. Right? And because he has this love, he does not need to overwork to earn something from his Father. He already has the love. He's not gaining anything by his labor. Rather, he responds then as a diligent steward who is loved and trusted. His life has meaning and purpose from being and not doing activities. This being loved produces the things that a well-loved son does as a loving response. This is not something Jesus is trying to earn from the Father. Rather, instead, in response to the Father's love, he's going, man, I'm so loved by you. How could I not offer to you everything that I do? He doesn't need the approval of man. Therefore, he's free to speak the truth in love, regardless of their reaction. He's free to express his emotions because it doesn't diminish his value. Because he's loved by the Father, feelings like joy or sorrow are a reason to run to the embrace of his loving Father. When he's feeling something, he doesn't have to hide it because it's somehow unspiritual or, or, or it makes him less in, in value in some way. He can come openly and, and free-heartedly to the Father with the state of his being. He can love authentically and deeply without fear of rejection because he lives from a place of acceptance and approval. He loves others in response to how he has been loved by the Father. He's not trying to get something from them. And if they reject him, it does him no harm. Why? Because he knows who he is. He knows his worth. He knows his value. Not only that, but he can accept his limitations without fear that it somehow makes him less. 
He has a need for sleep. Jesus needs sleep. That might be a word from the Lord for some of you. Jesus needed food. Can I get an amen? Jesus was limited to only having 24 hours in a day. Only being able to occupy one place at one time. Only being able to sustain so many intimate relationships. And Jesus accepted all of these limitations without fear that it was making him less because it doesn't diminish his value to have those limitations. Not only that, but he does not need to avoid pain doesn't need to avoid suffering, grief, or loss because they're not indicators of God's displeasure. Rather, pain, suffering, grief, and loss are all the servants of a loving Father. They expose the broken places in the world and cause the Son to cry out to Him to redeem them. In the words of C.S. Lewis, pain is God's megaphone to the world. You know, one of the most tragic things about leprosy is that leprosy is a disease that causes you to not be able to feel pain. And the way that affects your body is that the pain response to your brain is what signals your body to release the white blood cells and all of the healing properties that are necessary. And so if you are a leper and you don't have that pain response going on, what happens is you get injured, you get a little cut on your finger or you have a, a, a rat even. This is a true story. Rats would come and gnaw at the ears and at the nose of lepers while they slept. And those wounds would become infected because they can't feel the pain. And imagine a world where nobody ever felt like it was broken. Imagine a world where we, where we can't see the brokenness of the world and our need for redemption and our need for a savior. Pain is not the enemy. Suffering is not the enemy. Grief is not the enemy. These are the indicators that we live in a broken world and they're the things that propel us to call out to God to redeem them. And as disciples, we are invited to live in the same way as Jesus. We are invited to live out of our identity as sons and daughters of God. A disciple is not just learning what Jesus taught, the concepts, the theology, the instruction. They are learning how to live as Jesus would live if he were me. To live out of his heart. Jesus gave that invitation to the crowds of his day. Remember what we read at the beginning? Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love how Eugene Peterson's message translation phrases these same verses. Would you just, just let this wash over you, the words of the message? Same verses, rephrased. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You see, there's a way of living openly, honestly, and emotionally healthy lives, and Jesus showed us how to do it. During his earthly ministry, Jesus felt the full range of human emotions, from joy to sadness compassion to anger, distress to peace. Jesus set boundaries with other people to keep from being manipulated by them. He didn't entrust himself to the crowds for he knew what was in their hearts, the scriptures tell us. Yet he was undistracted. He was fully present to the people around him. He expressed empathy towards the suffering of others and embraced grief and sorrow rather than trying to avoid it. When Jesus needed to cry, he cried. He did so publicly. He didn't care who was watching. This is the state of my heart. This is who I am. He was free to express what was happening in his heart. Jesus knew when to engage in ministry, crowds, and busyness. He also knew when to withdraw recharges spiritual and emotional batteries to be alone. Jesus showed us how to live emotionally healthy lives. And to be a disciple who is growing in the likeness of Christ, we will need to pursue being emotionally healthy. The choices that Jesus made to engage or withdraw is him managing and pursuing his emotional health. The choices he made about fasting and praying was him pursuing his emotional health. The choices he made to have some people as close friends and others not as close friends is him pursuing emotional health. The choices he made about resting and working hard is him pursuing his emotional health. The choices he made about being honest about the state of his heart when he comes to his disciples, he says, my heart is overwhelmed. I am seriously distressed. When he expresses joy to them, oh, how I have longed to eat this meal with you. That's Jesus being emotionally healthy. It's him being honest about the state of his heart. How could he live in this way? because he saw his life, meaning, and purpose as being enfolded into the larger story of God's redemptive story. He found context for everything he faced in the story of God. You see, most of us live from a first-person perspective in life. 
And because of this, we all feel like we are either the victim, life is sort of happening to me and I'm, I'm just helpless against it, life is assaulting me, or we're the hero, right? We're like, I'm crushing life, life is amazing and I'm killing it, right? That is, you in a first person view of the world, that is how we interact with how life happens. But in reality, we're not center stage. You see, existence, reality as it is, is God's story, not ours. We're a part of God's story. Our lives are being woven into the millions of ways that God is working redemption in the world. His unconditional love and pursuit of us magnifies the grace of God at work. And when we live from that understanding, we're able to walk in emotionally healthy ways despite the circumstances in life. We're able to imitate Jesus in his approach to work, to food, to relationships, to trials, to conflict, to honesty about our feelings. Why? Because I'm, I'm just taking my part in God's story of redemption. Let me draw a picture of this that I think is helpful. When we try and graph out life, this is how we, we think of it. We go, okay, here's birth, and that's like the starting point. And then there's you know infancy, and that's like a high point. A lot of people doing great things for me. I, I pretty much rock. Everybody loves me, makes smiling faces at me. Hardly anybody's mean to me. It's wonderful, right? And then, and then, then come the teenage years. You know, like your body's going through changes. Life is difficult. Hormones are raging. Acne, right? You go, oh, this is, this is awful. This is a low point, right? Then comes early adulthood. You're like, oh, high point. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring life out. Things are amazing. I'm having a great time. I'm building friendships, getting married, starting a career. Like, this, this is awesome, high point. Then comes midlife crisis. That's like down here, right? And then, then you, you climb out of that. You move towards retirement. You go, oh, high point, right? Then dead. Uh, that's it. That's life, right? There it is, in a graph. Okay? But see, here's the thing. We tend to think that that's the full story. We tend to think that's it. And so the, the problem is, is that as life is unfolding, we're, we're subject to the highs and lows, and we're always fluctuating up and down. Life is good. Life is bad. Life is good. Life is bad. Right? And real experiences are happening, and sometimes we feel like we're the victim to those things, and sometimes we feel like we're the hero over those things. But, but here is a better way for us to imagine our lives. Imagine a line that stretches an infinite direction that way, and that's eternity past. And an infinite direction that way, and that's eternity future. And then I want you to imagine that I have a tiny little needle. And right here on that timeline, boop, is your story. It is enfolded into the story of God and his redemption. It's being wrapped up in, it's being woven into the story of redemption. 
My story, your story, is like the story of Joseph in the Bible. God is even using what the enemy intends for evil for good. He is redeeming it all. And, and we all have fluctuations in life, but those fluctuations find their purpose in what God desires to do in and through them. Now, all of a sudden, none of my suffering is wasted. Now, every moment of brokenheartedness has an eternal weight of glory placed upon it. Now, everything that I go through is shaping me for an eternal enjoyment of who God is. Seeing your life in the context of God's story of redemption matters. Just like Jesus grew up in a broken world, had many of the same disadvantages that we often see, the world did not form his view of himself. He allowed God to form that. He was born in poverty, in a third world condition, under questionable circumstances, to an oppressed people group. He experienced the harshness of his, of his environment. He saw the suffering of many. He was rejected. He was ridiculed. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was abused. However, Jesus saw himself in the context of God's story. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This became the definition of his life. He came to do the Father's will. He knew that his Father always hears him. He lived to see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This gave purpose to all of his actions. It pushed him to engage a lost world and proclaim the kingdom of God that it, that it had arrived. It caused him to structure his relationships and make investments in the places that mattered most, to withdraw from the places where it didn't, to not entrust himself to those who were not trustworthy. They called him to embrace the suffering of the, of the life he was experiencing and even to embrace death as a part of how God would use him. You see, when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we see ourselves through the lens of the story of God. And having this perspective changes our relationship to ourselves, to others, and to the very world itself. Our ability to find meaning, value, purpose, is all directly related to where you think you are in relationship to God's redemptive work in the world. Is God redeeming your story? That means that nothing that is presently happening is beyond the ability of God to redeem it for his purpose and for his glory. You see, just like he did in the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is using circumstance, the circumstances of our lives to reveal the inner workings of our heart so that we can be shaped into the image of Jesus. Our stories are enfolded into the story of God and this enables us to encounter brokenness without feeling broken forever. 
It helps us to accept our emotional fluctuations and to be honest about them because we know a bigger truth. I'm loved by God. I'm received by him. I can be honest about my heart. God gets the final say over our lives. And as a result of this, we can accept our emotional fluctuations and be honest about them because we know this bigger truth. It gives meaning to the vital relationships in our lives when we see our, our lives as enfolding in the story of God and his redemption. Now all of a sudden, the people I'm connected to, God is working in me and through me to bring redemption into the relationships around me as well. That's an incredible thing. My interactions, my love for my kids, my, my relationship with my wife, my, my, my friendships, my church community, my, my neighbor, all of those relationships now have incredible meaning. And how I navigate them matters in an internal way because God is longing to work redemption through my story. Not only that, but it gives us the ability to be able to rest, to withdraw, to recharge. Why? Because I'm, I'm not adding anything to the work of God. <laughs> my, my little pinprick on the timeline of eternity is not even going to make a dent in, in, in the God's total work of redemption. It's just this, so I have a very small part to play in my, well, depending upon my relationship with Bacon, it could be 60 years, could be 80 years of living here on earth, right? But listen, in, in that moment of time, I, I'm, I'm not, God doesn't need me as an essential ingredient to make things happen. He invites me to be an essential ingredient, right? That, that's different. And if I need rest in my finiteness, it takes nothing away from the redemptive work of God. He doesn't need me for that. Well, you say, well, won't that make us all lazy? No. Actually, it motivates hard work from the honor and love that we've been given by God. It presses us to love others as he loves. It makes us live in constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I'm feeling tired. Should I press through that now? Or are you calling me to Sabbath right now? God, I, I recognize that in all of my labor, I'm forgetting to just be a son and just be with you or just be a daughter and just be with you. God, what is more needful in this moment? That I go out and do more, take in more, learn more, attend more? Or is it most needful that I withdraw to a quiet place and be alone with the Father and be reminded that I have value not for what I do, but because I am your child? See, it motivates healthier work and healthier living. Now, I want to offer a few disclaimers because 
I recognize that there might be various people who are listening either here or maybe online who are already starting to check some boxes. Yeah, but what about this? And so let's offer a few disclaimers. First of all, pursuit is not arrival. You don't arrive at emotional health. It is a pursuit. It is an area of life that will continue to need monitoring. And this aspect of our discipleship is an area where we are assessing it in an ongoing way. We're asking ourselves, based on my present life circumstance and the way that I am coping with it, how healthy am I emotionally at this moment? And then recognizing our need and responding to it. So you don't arrive. It's not like, oh, I'm emotionally healthy forever. (laughs) That's not how it works. In an ongoing way, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, we're saying, Lord, search my heart. Right? I also want to talk about impairment. Sometimes our emotional well-being is not connected to how we are managing our emotions. There's actually something going on in our physical bodies. And because God has made us as whole beings, to ignore the fact that our physical bodies can have a a major effect on our emotional state is is just dumb. It's, It's unwise, right? To ignore the effect of a brain tumor or dementia or thyroid function or insomnia and its effect on our emotional well-being is foolish. If there's something wrong with us physically, we need to address it first. And our thoughts concerning this category of our discipleship of being pursuing emotional health is, is talking about that in light of a properly functioning body, okay? Also, I'm, I'm not talking about personality and temperament. You can be an emotionally unhealthy introvert or extrovert. The goal of pursuing emotional health is not to change your personality or your temperament from something that you aren't to, to something that you are. Rather, the goal is to be the healthiest version of how God has put you together that you can be. Okay? Next disclaimer. We're not talking about circumstance. There are many circumstantial pressures in life. And in pursuing emotional health, the goal is not so much to change your circumstance as much as it is to understand whether you are functioning in healthy or unhealthy ways regardless of the circumstance. Now, there are times when you should change the circumstances, like when you are depressed because you are a substance abuser or you're living with unrepentant sin. Other times, the things that are happening are things that we have no control of. And in pursuing emotional health, we're talking about how you handle the things that are in your sphere of control. A lot of times, the way that we continue to be emotionally unhealthy is we think, well, I feel bad, I feel emotionally unhealthy, so the right answer then is for me to get out of this relationship or to abandon this place in life or to change my job. We think the circumstance is going to fix the emotion. No, that's not it. The heart. Wherever you go, you take your problems with you. You realize that? So we're not talking about changing circumstance. We're also not talking about emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence relates to the way in which we give voice to the things that we feel. It has in mind the ability to discern our feelings and describe our inner world. 
And there are both men and women who don't have the vocabulary but are still emotionally healthy. They relate well to others. They remain open-hearted, resilient under pressure. But they don't necessarily know how to vocalize how they do what they do with their feelings. They still remain emotionally healthy. They just don't know how to talk about it, right? And this happens a lot of times with guys. In particular, guys, we don't have great emotional vocabulary. If you ask a guy, what are the things that you feel? He's like, happy? Hungry? Is hungry a feeling? Sad. Mad. Four feelings, right? That, that, that's about the extent of it. But that doesn't mean that you're emotionally unhealthy just because you don't have the vocabulary. Okay. What we are talking about, though, is really assessing ourselves and going, okay, as it stands right now, right at this moment, where am I in my pursuit of being emotionally healthy? Where am I as a disciple of Jesus at this moment? We can use a five-point scale for this, okay? So one being the lowest end, five being the upper end. If you are a one, you are in crisis, You're completely unaware of how your internal world is affecting your life. You're very anxious, emotionally absent, exhausted. You have no resilience, poor sleep, dominant comfort-seeking behaviors and addictions. Those things have a real foothold in your life. You don't really even understand why. You're not able to be present and undistracted to the relationships around you. You are in crisis. You're one. Okay? Maybe you're a two, you're struggling. Aware sometimes of how your inner world is affecting your outer world, fluctuating anxiety, fluctuating depression. You have low resilience, you can bounce back sometimes. Poor sleep, poor appetite. You have fluctuating or intermittent comfort-seeking behaviors and addictions that kind of come in and out of your life. Or maybe you are a three. That is, you're surviving. You're seeing, you're starting to see that the inner world affects your outer world, but you have very few tools to change it. You're often worried, nervous, irritable, sad, distracted, withdrawn, socially isolated. You have, you have seasons of joy and seasons of struggle, and you function from a place of intermittent security and intermittent moments of insecurity. You're surviving. You're a three. Maybe you're a four. That is, you're thriving. You are aware and equipped with the ability to discern what you need in order to stay healthy. You have a a deep connection to yourself and to others. You know when you need to withdraw. You feel comfortable talking about your feelings. You feel open and able to talk about the past, even the painful parts. You have a strongly rooted sense of being loved by God, and you function from a place of security. I am a son, I am a daughter, in whom the Father is pleased. Or you're perfect, you're just like Jesus, you're five. (laughs) Perfectly pursuing, perfectly balanced, You, you never get out of whack. You know, the perfect time to withdraw and to be with the Father, and you do it. 
There are no issues from your past that are affecting your present behaviors, your attitudes, or your actions. You, you do all things well. If that's you, please start a YouTube channel, I promise. I will ring that bell. I will subscribe. I want to learn from you. Okay. So where are you? You have one, two, a three, a four, or a five. And what can you do to change it? I'm going to give you some practical tips. How are we doing on time? Three, which is be, don't even worry about it. <laughs> nice, buddy. What can you do to pursue emotional health and grow in this aspect of your discipleship? First one, ready? Write this down. Take it to the bank. Saturate yourself in the gospel. You see, because of our union with Christ, we are justified, that is, no longer condemned. We are sanctified, no longer defiled. We are adopted, no longer an orphan. We are washed, no longer dirty. We are redeemed, no longer enslaved. We are purchased, no longer in debt. We are liberated, no longer imprisoned. We've been given the new birth, no longer non-existent. We have been given illumination. We're no longer blind. We are resurrected, no longer dead. You see, the truth of the gospel reorients our entire life. It is the gospel that speaks God's affirming words over us. I love you. And I am pleased with you. It is our union with Christ and his imputation of righteousness upon us that affirms our identity and forms the truth upon which emotional health is built. There's a book called Deeper by Dane Ortland. In it, he writes this. Submerge yourself in this truth, your union with Christ. Let it wash over you. The divine son through whom all things were made, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one whose constant care and guidance of all molecular reality, without whose constant care and guidance of all, guidance, all of molecular reality would fall apart. He is the one with whom you have been united through no activity of your own, but by the sheer and mighty grace of God, you have been enveloped in the triumphant and tender rule and ruler of the cosmos. So we need to saturate ourselves in the gospel. Second thing, learn to pay attention to comfort-seeking behaviors. Learn to pay attention to comfort-seeking behaviors. These are indicators for us. Pay attention to the ways that you numb yourself when you feel anxious, stressed, hurt, or otherwise. When you find yourself numbing life with substance abuse, like food, sex, shopping, etc., distraction activities like overworking, media consumption, leisure, These are evidences that you're trying to level out your unhealthy state of being. And when you see these rays that are heads, it's time 
to get still. It's time to be alone with the Lord. It's time to withdraw and receive from him once again the affirmation that we are his child and that he loves us. Both your behaviors and your body will let you know when something needs to be addressed. This is super important. I, I just very practically, I want to say this. When you recognize some comfort-seeking behavior kind of rearing its head, and that could be anything. It could be food, sex, shopping, social media consumption, whatever. It is a time for you to go, okay, there is craving inside of me. Why? Where is that hunger coming from? I'm trying to fill or satisfy a need. I need to identify what's going on in my life that craving is driving me at this moment. Because all of those behaviors are our internal sense of being empty is, is being made known through our bodies. Okay? And it's a time to go back to the Lord and to be refilled by him once again. Number three, learn to pay attention to your emotions. Listen, emotions are like the blinking light on the dashboard of your car. Your car will not run better if you just take a Sharpie and black out the blinking light. Okay? The light is not the problem. It's what's under the hood. Your emotional state is an indicator of what's going on under the hood of your life. Emotions are not bad or good. They're just a part of being human. And they reveal that something's happening in our hearts. They're like the blinking light on the dashboard. So notice the blinking light on the dashboard and run to God and ask what might be wrong. Try prayerfully journaling your struggles like the psalmists did. That's what the psalms are. People with the blinking light on the dashboard that ran to God. pray. Ask God to show you the possible underlying sin, idolatry, misplaced hope, anxiety, fear. Get personal with the Lord in silence and in solitude. Number three, keep working to reconcile the past. Acknowledge the truth of your story. Listen, one of the most harmful things that can happen is when we try and bury the reality of what we've come from. You cannot do that. God has made us in, in such a way that the longer you bury the reality of what you've come from, the more harm it does to you long term. So keep working to reconcile the past. Keep working to, to see how your story is being folded into the redemptive story of God. Keep working to see how it is that, that like Joseph on the day when he had power over his brothers and he could do exact he could exact retribution from them. He was able to look at them and say, you know what? You did what you did. But all along, this was God moving me here for this moment to bring salvation. How is God weaving your story into his story of redemption? You see, we're all the product of sins that we have committed and sins against us. Begin looking at the ways that God desires to take the evil done against you or the evil that you have done and to use it to showcase his redemption. That's how you reconcile the past. Number five, seek the counsel of a professional. Listen, there is no shame in seeking counseling. 
I have been to counseling many times over the course of my life. Started out state mandated, right? <laughs> that, was my, that was my introduction to it. <laughs> okay, but later on, as a pastor, when my faith was falling apart, as a husband, when my marriage was unhealthy, as a dad, when my kids were suffering, I needed space to go to talk about what was happening in my heart. And I needed a qualified listening ear who could respond and give me tools for how to navigate those things. It has been one of God's greatest tools to heal the wounds and broaden my understanding. One of the greatest tools he has used to shape me and to make me more like Jesus. So don't be afraid of it. Sixth thing, Recognize the war for your attention. There is a war going on for your attention. And because you only have so many hours in the day, you will have to choose what you give your attention to. You need to be present to your relationship with God, to your relationship with your own soul, and to the relationships around you the deep connections in your life. We all know that the most common indicator for people who are going to hurt themselves, commit suicide, is isolation, disconnection. I mean, we just saw on a global scale what happens when a society begins to feel disconnected. Remember when Portland was on fire? what happens when people feel disconnected, when they feel displaced. It's what happens when a world is isolated, okay? We need those connections. And so I'm going to have to be present. Listen, and when I'm home with vital relationships and I'm on my phone, when I'm in the presence of believers and there's opportunity for fellowship and I'm on my phone or I'm distracted with the the, the TVs that are in the background and there's always something going on. When I'm in the car and the radio is blaring so I don't have to talk to the person next to me or I don't have to be faced with my need for prayer and connection relationally with God, then all of a sudden I'm no longer able to be present with God, I'm no longer able to be present with the people around me and I'm no longer able to be present with myself. I am isolated and alone while being surrounded, okay? Pay attention to your need to give attention to the things that are most important in life. Can I just recommend something? Turn the radio off every once in a while when you're in your car. Ride in silence. Let me give you, a, this is a freebie, I'll throw another one out, okay? Don't talk so much in prayer. Listen in prayer. Sit in silence. Let the awkwardness of that wash over you and listen for the voice of God. He talks back. He speaks to his people. Sit in the silence and allow God to reveal the things that are in your heart. Man, we need 
to live undistracted. Recognize that there's a war for your attention. How can we do this together? Listen, preach the gospel and the grace of God to one another regularly. Pray for one another, not the Christianese prayers that sound like something written in a gas station religious book. Pray from the heart. Pray with passion for one another. Take the time to listen to one another's hearts and then turn that to God in the form of prayer and praise. Nurture deep relationships. Be connected. Grow in fellowship. Share your heart. Be vulnerable. Be honest with one another. These are all essential for you to be an emotionally healthy disciple of Jesus. Amen? Would you stand? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King. In what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. God, we love you. Help us to walk in what you revealed in your word. Help us to live as disciples who are deeply connected to you, to one another. Help us to live out of our identities as sons and daughters. Help us to know when to engage and when to withdraw, when to, when to work hard and when to rest. Help us to know what relationships we, we have to pour ourselves into, we have to give ourselves to, and which ones, God, we can withdraw from because we recognize that that is not the best place or the best use for our energy based on the priorities you've given us. God, give us openness with our hearts. We would share honestly out of who we are and where we are in the moment and help us to see how our lives are being woven into your redemptive story. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love as we go today. Give us purpose and direction that we might be disciples who mirror image you to the world around us. In the name of Jesus, amen.